Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. Also, Dan Andriaco's Too Many Clues, the latest McCabe-Cody mystery, available in time for the holidays. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 181. The Daily Sherlock Holmes. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a chronicler. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. Oh, Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And we are here to welcome you today... And every day that you listen to the show to discuss things and people and all of the goings on related to Sherlock Holmes. We have a <laughs> wonderful brace of guests that we have lined up for today. Uh, but first, before we do that, just want to remind you that you can support the show at IHearOfSherlock.com. You can select PayPal or Patreon. We do prefer if you use Patreon because it's easy for us to keep track of donors that way and to send rewards your way uh, as you continue to help us bring the show to other listeners. We have a variety of rewards that are available. If you just click on that orange button, it'll take you over to our Patreon site and you'll understand exactly how it is that you can do that. We would also ask that if you have any comments, you send them to us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com or you can leave them in a comment in the comment section at ihose.co slash ihose181. That's all lowercase. And, of course, you can find us on the social networks as I Hear of Sherlock. Well, in this episode, we are pleased to be joined by... The two authors and editors of the new book, The Daily Sherlock Holmes, a year of quotes from the casebook of the world's great detective. Levi Stahl and Stacy Shintani have worked together on this. They are both interested in Sherlock Holmes, as you will certainly hear. Uh, and in fact, Levi is a marketing director at the University of Chicago Press, which also happens to be the publisher of this book. And his partner, Stacy Shintani, is a project manager at One Design Company. And, like Sherlock Holmes in his retirement, she is also a beekeeper. Levi and Stacy, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. 
Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, we're going to start with the two of you the same way we start with all of our guests, and that is by asking you how you first came to know this character, Sherlock Holmes. Stacy, why don't we start with you? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it's like, how did you come to know air? Because <laughs> uh, I feel like Sherlock Holmes has always been just a part of our culture and and out there. But I think specifically for me and Levi, um, our personal origin story with Sherlock Holmes is that uh, we live in Chicago and Levi's parents used to live in southern Illinois. And many, many years ago when we would make that drive down to visit them for the holidays, uh, there's not a ton of phone signal or even radio signal on that drive. And so uh, we would read Sherlock Holmes stories to each other in the car to make that long drive. Oh, wow. That's fun. Like Kind of like your own live audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they make for good reading that way because they're a good length and there's a variety of voices. It's, it's a fun way to experience them. Well, whose idea was it to bring along... Uh, Sherlock Holmes. Well, I, I would imagine you probably get it on a Kindle because you can get them up for free and do them uh, while you're mobile. But who, whose idea was it to, to use those stories? We picked up a volume, uh, one of those little Dover paperbacks for a, a, probably for a dollar because yeah. that was what they were priced in, I think, yeah. at a friend's bookstore up in Door County, Wisconsin, when we were on one trip. And that was my first time reading Holmes as an adult. And I think we just on the drive on that drive home from that trip, we just started reading them. And one or the other of us read it aloud, and we realized that this made for really good car company. Well, that's fascinating. That's what fascinating. an astounding memory you have, Levi, because now that you've said that, I do remember that was Kubi's bookshop up in Door County, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. When it comes to books, where and when we got them, that's that's what my memory specializes in. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, do you, do you recall having uh, any kind of meaningful interaction with the stories, say, in, in uh, grade school or high school or anything like that? I remember distinctly having a little paperback, a little chunky paperback that was an illustrated Hound of the Baskervilles. Looking back, I'm sure it was uh, trend was completely rewritten for that, sort of like reading Chaucer in modern language or something to that degree for a for a young person. I think it was probably, you know, only a few thousand words total and those words not very Victorian or Edwardian, but <laughs> With the illustrations, the point got across. I was terrified by that book as a child and really drawn to it. Well, it'll it'll do that to you. <laughs> I don't recall. I I know that I know who Sherlock and Watson are, but I don't recall specifically reading those stories in elementary or, or high school. Uh, I surely must have encountered them before we started reading them together. Um but those road trips were definitely a way to, to get a deep dive into those characters and get to know them better. Yeah. So how was it that the two of you decided, you know, after those, uh, you know, amazing car rides, those early beginnings, uh, reading to each other, how was it that you decided that you'd like to do some sort of book related to Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> that was all Levi Stahl. Oh, so yeah, this goes back to my – I'm the marketing director at the University of Chicago Press, which is the publisher of the book. And about five years ago, I was messing around on Google Books and discovered a book of Henry James' daily quotes from 1911 that was called something like the Henry James Yearbook. And it had been published with a short forward by James, so therefore with his approval, but no one knew about it. I 
talked to James fan friends and I checked in with a James biographer. It had just come and gone and disappeared. And so I, being a Henry James fan, suggested to my colleagues that we could package this up, retitle it The Daily Henry James, and probably have a nice little product on our hands, a nice book to sell people as a gift book. So we did that, and it succeeded, and it was fun to work on. Uh, there's nothing quite like going out to publicity contacts and saying that you've found a forgotten Henry James book. Um, and that led us to thinking of other things we could do. So we commissioned a daily Charles Dickens. We commissioned a daily Jane Austen that just came out this fall. And about a year ago, right around Labor Day, I was on my commute home, and I had an idea out of the blue and just texted Stacy. Do you want to co-edit the Daily Sherlock Holmes with me? I was so charmed to get this text. I hadn't obviously thought of uh, Sherlock Holmes as necessarily being the most academic topic for the University of Chicago Press to to tackle next with their daily series. But uh, I thought it was an amazing idea, and I was all in. And I immediately, because it was you know around Labor Day, had this vision of us sitting in our library at home, all cozy with candles through the winter, reading these stories, reading them out loud to each other, picking out the quotes and organizing them. And then Levi said, well, I think we could turn in uh, the manuscript by the end of October. (laughs) (laughs) This was me thinking like a business person, because I knew if I turned it in in October, we could publish it the next fall and have it out for the holiday season. But if we went much beyond that, it was going to be tough. Mm. So I figured we could do it. Yeah, as Levi put it, we can do anything, and uh, we did. It was uh, it was a really rapid progress, but uh, process, but it was a lot of fun. Huh. What do you, what do you think about day books? You know, this is such a great topic, I'm, and you have these other literary interests, and it's great that you mentioned Henry James. I'm just curious, have you? Um, um, how how do you sort of fit the the idea of a literary day book? Um, into culture today. I'm I'm really curious about that because as I look at my bookshelves over the years, I've just accumulated my own collection of various day books, a book of days for the literary year. I happen to have the Charles Lamb day book. Oh, that's wonderful. I love it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? And there's through the year with Shakespeare that I acquired over the years. Um, and so many others. And there's, um, you know, one of our favorite writers, Christopher Morley, also had a had a day book. And I'm curious, you know, what you think about the the topic and the alignment with popular culture. Uh, from a kind of mix of a professional side and a reader side, for me, I I enjoy them because I think they fit into a nice spot for people, where all it's asking of you is a little bit every day, and you can, if it's a, an author or a subject that interests you, you can set it by your bedside or by your coffee table for the morning. And just a, with a few minutes a day, you get to go back and be engaged with this author, or this subject. And you can do it no matter how busy you are, how much else is going on in your life. Uh, you know, we're in an era where books are competing with other forms of entertainment in some ways more than ever. And this gives them a little bit of an edge, while also, I say as somebody who prefers physical books, while also privileging the physical book a little bit. We certainly do sell ebooks of these, and and you people certainly do enjoy books like this on ebook. But I think they are fundamentally about having the book by your side and just checking in with it, and that's fun. Yeah, I I mean I definitely agree with Levi on you know 
kind of culturally how we engage with things with short attention spans and with all of the competition for our time and attention. But I think another thing about day books for me is that it's a wonderful way to revisit what you love about an author or about a series of books. Um, you know, it's a, a little bit of a low pressure way, but we love Sherlock Holmes because we love Sherlock and we love Watson and we love their relationship and we love their adventures. And, and this is just such a lovely way to drop in on that thing that we love um, and spread it out over the year. Oh yeah. That's, that's beautifully said. I think you're right. The, and you know, originally what I was curious about was it just seems to me to be so timely because everything we know about attention spans is that they're getting narrower rather than broader, at least popularly but this um yeah it's a great it's and i'm just looking here so now i've sort of started and i find that today the day we're recording this today of course is the anniversary of that day in 1865 when mark twain's first famous story was published in the saturday press of new york under its original title jim smiley and his jumping frog (laughs) so so just encountering these things you know that you would never find otherwise and just taking a moment um and it's always a great surprise to me. Yeah. Tom Nisley, who owns Shippy Books in Seattle, put out a book a few years ago that was the Reader's Book of Days. It was a similar thing. With it, it was a, a page of stuff every day with, you know, some of it would be quotes, some would be events in literary history. And similarly, it's it's just a really satisfying way to engage with books in the past. And and like that Samuel Clemens thing, you you hit upon stuff you haven't thought about in a long time that it then brings back to your mind. And sometimes you end up going to your shelf and, and going and reading that thing that's referred to as well. And that's definitely the case with the Holmes stories. I think one of our hopes for this is that people will be reminded throughout the year, oh, yeah, I haven't read The Adventures of Three Napoleons in a few years. That one's wild. And go back to it. In fact, uh, Levi, you haven't read it in so many years. It seems that there's half as many Napoleons as you recall. You're right. I just had that, that thought. This reminds me of when you see the three, the three Days of the Condor movie. The one of the first things that it says is based on the novel The Six Days of the Condor, and you're like, wait a minute. So I just lost three Napoleons like that. Well done. Well, the good news is there are three Garadevs, three students, and three Gables to choose from. So folks have yeah. lots well, of but options. Well, but two, you know, attention spans are getting really short. I mean, today, I don't know if anybody's got time for more than three of the Napoleons. Wow. Deja vu. <laughs> Serious deja vu right there. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, now, by the way, I have to tell you that consulting some of these other – I'm sorry to be bored, dragging this conversation down as I wander through my book shelves, but I have to tell you, today is the birthday of Adrian Conan Doyle in 1910. How about that? Oh, oh. so it is oh, an auspicious day. Who knew? And Perfect. the birthday of W.S. Gilbert, too. So there you are. Well, that is perfect because the quote for uh, November 18th, the day we're recording this, in the daily Sherlock Holmes is, One true inference invariably suggests others. <laughs> How appropriate, Bert. <laughs> So that that leads me to ask, um, Stacy, how the two of you decided to divide and conquer, because it's very clear you had a a long romantic winter planned ahead, very cozy, <laughs> uh, going through the the canon page by page and picking things out. And Levi was on; he was a man with a mission. And I have to imagine that you needed to divide and conquer in order to do this most efficiently. So how did this all come about? How did you decide to to split up 
responsibilities as you put this tome together? Yeah, it it happened a bit naturally, but I I love that you mentioned efficiency because I'm a project manager by trade, and so efficiency is one of my favorite uh-huh. things. Um, it it turned out that there was a natural division of labor, and that we ended up spending the most time on the things that we loved the most. So it was it was just such a fun um, journey to be on together. The um, the process um, at a very high level was we read the stories, we flagged and then transcribed quotes that we thought would be interesting to include. And we knew that we'd going to end up, we were going to end up with a pile that was a lot larger than 365 days. And then we took those quotes and we um, organized them to try to see what themes might fall out, you know, how we would then start to translate them into um, pairing for each day of the year. So the first part of that, the reading part of it and the, and the flagging and transcribing, Levi did the lion's share of that, um, we're both I have readers. I a long but... commute every day on the bus <laughs> and the train. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're both readers, but Levi is the more voracious of the two of us. And so I would say he probably did at least two thirds of uh, reading the stories that were out of copyright or would be out of copyright by the publication date and pulling out the things that we thought might be gems that were worth, worth sharing again. And then I did the lion's share of organizing. I, man, I had a spreadsheet. I love spreadsheets. Um, a spreadsheet where, you know, we had each of the transcribed quotes and we started to organize them and figure out, okay, well, if it mentions a certain day of the year, you know, it should go on that day of the year. If it happens in a certain season, we want to make sure that it feels like it fits into that part of the book. And then I started to identify a bunch of other um, themes or ideas or things that we wanted to make sure were spread throughout the book or were grouped together. Um, so I did the lion's share of the, of the organizing in that regard. Hmm. And then we, yeah, we kind of, um, toward the end, we needed to make sure, you know, we had some things that we wanted to check. We wanted to make sure that there weren't um, two or more quotes from the same story in a row unless it was really, really intentional. Um, we wanted to make sure that we didn't accidentally include the same quote twice. So there was some sort of copy editing and logistics stuff. And we, we shared the, the load on that. The spreadsheet was fun because one thing Stacy did early on when we were just entering the possible entries was come up with a series of characteristics that you could flag a passage as having. So was it a passage that was primarily about Holmes and Watson's relationship? Was it about uh, one of the main other main characters like, you know, Moriarty, Lestrade, Irene Adler, people like that, whose names you want to make sure you flag? Uh, was it, there was a category called poor Watson, where it was it one of those situations where Watson is being dressed down or, or embarrassed a little bit. Uh, and it was fun to start thinking through the different aspects of quotable parts of the Sherlock Holmes stories as a, a way towards sorting them out in an interesting way. Yeah. And as, as that spreadsheet grew, I would keep adding categories for things. So in addition to poor Watson, which was one of our favorites, um, there were uh, columns for each of the main characters. I'm actually looking at that spreadsheet now. Of course we have Holmes and Watson, but Mycroft, Mrs. Hudson, Irene Adler, Moriarty, Mary Watson, Lestrade, um, the Baker Street Irregulars. But then these categories started to emerge, and I would add them as they became obvious. Love, disguises, music, smoking, action hero, the game, methods, niche expertise, showing off, philosophizing, philosophizing. <laughs> things that just felt cozy. Um, opening a case and closing a case, it became clear that some of these quotes, you know, kicked things off and others uh, were drawing to a close. And, you know, we made some decisions about, well, I feel like 
opening a case naturally happens at the start of a month and closing a case might be a nice way to end out the months. Um, and then other things like seasons and months and dates, of course, we uh, we try to match up to parts of the year. Sorry, I was just going to interject here. Bert, I think we should get a copy of this spreadsheet because it would really help us with trifles. Yeah, yeah, we, we're in the mar- we're in the market for some data acquisition here. Absolutely, yeah, we <laughs> we do a second Sherlock Holmes podcast weekly. It's about fifteen to twenty minutes long. We talk about a certain aspect of the stories, um, like disguises or sports and games or you know different things like that. Uh, we've been doing that for I think three years now. So we're always looking for uh, additional inspiration for trifling subjects. Well, th- this spreadsheet could be your friend. And <laughs> you'll be glad to know it. that one thing it led to was Stacy figured out that we could have a theme week each month. And so every, every month, all right, Stacy, mm-hmm. there's, there's one week of entries that is on a theme. So there's a week that's on Holmes's many monographs. There's a week about dogs. There's a week in October about disguises. And it's really fun to you know, in this book that theoretically could be organized just by drawing entries out of a hat, it was fun to watch Stacy put these patterns in place and build a scaffolding that a casual reader running through might not notice moment to moment, but that do give it a feeling of being something that was assembled with care. Yeah, it, it starts to draw a certain rhythm or cadence, I think, uh, even if it's you know pretty subliminal. Uh, a couple of other examples of that are usually on the fourth of the month, there's something about the two of them working together or their friendship, Holmes and Watson. And usually on the 13th of the month, there's something about a blender or something that's gone awry. Uh, right. um, Holmes will often admit a mistake, which, as we know, it doesn't doesn't happen all that often. <laughs> I think it happens 12 or less times, but they're in there and they're on the 13th of the month. <laughs> that's That's really ingenious. I love that. And then, yeah. of course, there are a handful. We didn't go full Sherlockian and dig up like I know that there are there are dates assigned to many, many, many events in the canon. We didn't go so far as to build things around that, but where there were dates that could be clearly determined from the text, even if they weren't explicit, like like the Reichenbach fall, we made sure to hit that on the right date. The ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex is moving towards the goal of 100% employment. That's why you need to visit WessexPress.com, where your purchases help us restore the guilds of bakers, brewers, butchers, and blacksmiths that served us well for centuries. There you can buy the Sherlock Holmes Reverence Library the original exhaustively annotated 10-volume edition of the Sherlock Holmes stories by Edgar Award winner Leslie S. Klinger, the most complete collection of Sherlockian scholarship and commentary ever assembled, bursting with scholarly annotations and sturdy, signature-sewn, softcover bindings. These are the days when the sun pours gold into the air and flecks of light float in shafts through waving branches. On this autumn afternoon, reach for the pleasure only a volume from the Wessex Press can provide. Choose yours today. Talk talk a little bit more about the cadence and the rhythm. I mean, in, in going through this, did you notice any... For example, one of our friends, um, 
Lindsay Fay has written a series of books, a couple of which are pastiches of Holmes and Watson. And one of her observations was that because of the length of time in which Holmes and Watson were active and Conan Doyle um, wrote these stories, that she observed a change in their relationship over time. And when she tried to write some pastiches, some new Sherlock Holmes stories, she tried to pattern them after where they would have been, in her opinion, in in the course of the development of their relationship. But I'm curious, what, you know, generally, did you notice any patterns or rhythms oh, in the absolutely. canon? That, yeah. yeah, and that's brilliant to um, to try to place where they are in their relationship in time. Um, I think the best example of that for me was actually a little microcosm of that, which is that Holmes's relationship with Lestrade really changes drastically over time. And because we have less examples of that, of, you know, Lestrade interacting with, with Holmes and Watson than we do of Holmes and Watson with each other, it was really clear when we pulled out the best Lestrade quotes that he starts off as a total buffoon, um, you know, and, and very mistrustful. And Holmes and Lestrade grow to to like and respect and maybe even admire each other on their own terms over the course of their relationship. And that was one of the themes that we pulled out. I, I don't recall which month it is, but there is a month where one of the weeks is the Lestrade theme. And you can, you can see that relationship grow and change over the course of a week in the book. Now, and I think you do see that with Watson as well, certainly. And it obviously the, the crudest form of it is from the very first story to the end, just Watson figuring out who Holmes is and where what his role is in the life. But there's yeah, there are definitely those moments later in the series where Holmes expresses his admiration often to a third person for Watson and what he brings. And it's a it is that reminder that Watson came into Holmes' life sort of one kind of person in Holmes's eyes and that changed and vice versa. Now even with a as helpful a tool as a spreadsheet with with its many uh, with as many iterations and the additional columns as they they came to, um, as you came to recognize that these topics were were relevant, I have to imagine that there were some gaps in there that you needed to fill. That there were some uh, some square pegs that needed to fit into round holes. Talk a little bit about how you handled that. I think my biggest worry initially was that. We were, so we were drawing from all the stories that aren't in copyright, which as of this January is all, but I want to say seven or eight of them. You guys probably know exactly. Uh, oh, guys, but, it's a tab in the spreadsheet, I can tell you. <laughs> um, hey, all hail the spreadsheet. <laughs> there were My initial worry was that there would be some stories that just didn't yield a single quote. And because I did feel like I wanted to draw from everything that was available, mm -hmm. at least a little bit. And I did end up didn't end up feeling we had to stretch for anything. We got something from every story that was available, and it felt like none of those were were lesser, and were just included to do that. But um, as far as filling out the rest, yes, I don't know, Stacey, do you have thoughts on, on square pegs and round holes? <laughs> no, um, it was really more of the opposite problem of just having so much good stuff to choose from and trying to make sure... Um, Maybe we had square holes. We we wanted to, there were a couple of stories that just weren't as rich as the others. Um, I think we only pulled two quotes from His Last Bow, uh, only one from The Adventure of the Three Students. Uh, and so there were a few stories where we didn't have as many. Uh, and I wanted to make sure, because those stories didn't get as much love, that we made a place for them. So 
there was sort of a lot of dimensions to the organization behind the scene just to, to include stuff. But I didn't, I didn't ever feel like there was something that didn't fit. I think part of the fun for me and part of the reason that I thought to, to bring Stacy in on this project from the start, part of it obviously was the organizational ability, but also the, the acknowledgement that neither of us, especially compared to the guests you've had um, who have PhDs in homes, neither of us is an expert on homes. We are fans <laughs> through and through more than anything else. And the idea of doing this with two sensibilities at play of fans rather than one mm. made me feel more comfortable that this would we, what we would come out with was a book that other fans would really like. So if we each looked at 570 quotes or whatever, pared them down to 370 we would I would feel more comfortable that the two of us had done it together and we both agreed on their merits than if I had done it by myself or Stacy had done it by herself. Yeah, there absolutely were a couple of really pleasant evenings where we sat down and just looked through everything and agreed on which ones the best ones were. And of course the spreadsheet played a role. You know, we each kind of graded them to start, but there ended up being a middle ground of you really love this one, why make the case for it? And uh I really love this one. Here's why. Hmm. Now, I know you said you eliminated the, uh, the the stories that are still in copyright, but did you happen to look through those stories for any quotes, just in case? We like, didn't, and there I've, I've got to know, there were nine. Nine, yeah, okay. and I, we didn't for the simple reason that that would have. If I honestly, I didn't want to find any because <laughs> trying to include one would have added so much complexity for my yeah. colleagues and I here at the press that. I just didn't even want to know what I was missing. Yeah. So I, I, I know that the next time I go to those stories, that will be in my mind, but the mm-hmm. book will exist. You know, it's already out there now, so I can't, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> I will say that the adventure of the Sussex vampire, the mm-hmm. three Garadebs, the illustrious client, the three Gables, the Blanche soldier, the lion's mane, the retired colorman, the veiled lodger, and Shoscombe Old Place are, uh, are probably the next nine that we would read out loud to each other. <laughs> there you go. And and there's some fascinating tales among those. Not all winners, but you know a few a few good ones. Um, I feel because Levi brought up the um, the distinction between fans and experts that there's a story that we should share with you, and I think Levi's the best one to tell it about fans and experts. Yeah, well, and I should preface that I guess by saying one of the benefits of publishing this through University Press, and the main benefit of publishing it through the University of Chicago Press was I got to work with my colleagues, which is a delight. But the another benefit is it got put through the University Press re- peer review process. So that worry that, sta- whatever worry Stacy and I had that, oh, because we are not experts and there definitely are people who are experts in this realm, we might make mistakes. That was assuaged greatly by the fact that the process for a University Press book, even one for a general reader like this is that it's sent out to people who know the field to comment on in advance and to make sure that we didn't make mistakes. We didn't make, you know, claims that shouldn't be made about homes or the stories and that it was a, a quality book on that front. And then having Michael Sims write the forward who, who's been a guest on your program before. Oh, the man uh, is a gem. Is, yeah. It really he? helped, helped us feel like, okay, we're on solid ground here. <laughs> And in in the back of our mind was a very specific worry about a very specific person. So (laughs) years ago, when Julian Barnes published um, Arthur and George, his novel about Conan Doyle, he gave a reading at the Newberry Library here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And Stacey and I went, and there was a full room of people there 
because Barnes has fans, but also because it was a novel about Conan Doyle. And so Barnes got up and in his lovely accent, he, he introduces himself and he says, oh, I suppose most of you are here because you're fans of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, raise your hand if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan. And of course, everyone in the room raises their hand, except a guy sitting next to us who just raised one finger very quietly alongside his head and said, expert. <laughs> the daily Sherlock Holmes is for that man. Yeah. So we are, that he was the guy we were, we had in our mind when we were, when just wanted to make sure that this had been signed off on by people who knew the canon better than we did. And hopefully he will enjoy it whenever he comes across it. And do you know who that gentleman was? No we idea. Did, it will not surprise you, perhaps, that we did not further engage with him. <laughs> <laughs> now, how long ago was that? Um, I believe that book came out in 2004 okay. or so, so it's been a while. I'm oh, thinking... Was, was this one of you? That, no, no. no. We're, we're not in Chicago, but that could have been Fred Kittle, who um, was a... Was a Baker Street irregular, um, a noted Conan Doyle collector and an expert on Sherlock Holmes who uh, had his collection housed at the Newbury for a number of years. It's totally possible then, yeah. Well, I will say he did not create any kind of disturbance. We, just, we were the only people who happened to hear him, and it amused us and has amused us now for years. That's great. Well, uh, if, if that Sherlockian is not Fred Kittle and you're listening to the show right now, drop us a line and let us know because we'd be delighted to hear. We would love to know your identity. Absolutely. And, and Stacy and Levi, um, since you are uh, located in Chicago, there are a couple of Sherlockian uh, societies that meet with regularity in the Chicago area. Uh, including the Hounds of the Baskerville, sick, uh, and <laughs> I think uh, Hugo's Companions as well. So uh, if you're interested in meeting up with uh, like-minded people, people who don't care whether you know exactly uh, how many dressing gowns Sherlock Holmes had or whether you just have uh, read one or two of the stories, uh, this would be the place to meet up with them. That's great to know. Thank you. Absolutely. No, I feel I feel like if we can if we you know survive our first few encounters with people who know the canon better than we do, we can do anything. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, look, I think part of it is is coming to the game with uh, a, a sense of sincerity. Uh, you know, we whether you're creating a a parody, a reference volume, or a pastiche, uh, people knowing that you're you're in this with your heart. Uh, I, I think that makes a, a great deal of difference. And when when we pick up this this book, uh, the Daily Sherlock Holmes, a year of quotes. Who ideally who is your target audience for this? Because I I walk away with this feeling like even as a, a tried and true Sherlockian, I get a lot out of it. And yet I feel like someone who maybe hasn't even read a single story might get something out of it as well. What what was your take? Yeah, I think that is the that is the hope is to to make it something that the dedicated fan will enjoy encountering and will enjoy engaging with every day. And like Stacy was saying, I think give somebody who loves the stories the feeling of being back in that world briefly every day. And but then also I whether whether it will somebody who hasn't read the stories at all would be willing to take the plunge. I mean, that would would be a dream. And I do think it's it's accessible for them. If you're somebody who came to it from the movie adaptations of the TV shows, 
it could be that the, something like this could be your entree into actually experiencing them as Conan Doyle created them. Um, and that would be wonderful if we brought people to it that way. Um, I will say when I set out to do this project, I imagined that we were writing more for the fans who wanted to revisit these wonderful characters that they love to spend time with and these places and these adventures. Um, it's a bonus for sure. If we bring any new readers into the canon, but um, <laughs> there are a couple of Easter eggs in the book, um, maybe for the more serious readers for the Sherlockians. Oh, and any, any hints about that to entice us? If you've got the book in front of you, take a look at April 1st. Yeah, April Fool's Day was a fun a fun day to pick. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, speaking of dates, um, you were very creative with February 29th as well. Ah, that's the other. That's yeah. the other favorite. Well, what was your thinking behind that? You don't have to give away exactly what it was because obviously we want to sell books here. But help us understand how you approached February 29th. Um, I... I don't know how to tell the story without giving away what the quote is, so it might make sense to to read it and explain it and then tell you how it came to be because it came to be in an absolutely bonkers way. Let's do it. Uh, this is where I have to admit that I'm at the office and I forgot to bring my copy okay. of the book. Okay. I'll tell you what. Yeah, I, I will read the quote and then I'll let you comment. Holmes smiled and said, Monsieur Devon, everybody cannot solve riddles. And it's from the extraordinary adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, 1910. So that is not a story by Arthur Conan Doyle. You are correct. Uh, <laughs> it is, uh, we believe, the only story that uh, is still out there that's out of copyright that mentions Sherlock Holmes by name that is not by Arthur Conan Doyle. It's LeBlanc. It's Maurice LeBlanc. And, oh, right. Yeah. Basically, the core of our thinking there was February 29th is not quite a normal day. It's it's barely a day. And it's a day that only exists sometimes. And so we thought, when we came across this line, we thought, well, it'd be fun to include something that's not quite a proper Sherlock Holmes quote, but is still Holmes on this day that's not quite a proper day. But the way that we came across that line was, and neither one of us can claim credit for it, a good friend of ours um, emailed us because he knew that we were working on this project. And he said, I've been playing this video game, this Japanese video game, where part of what you do, in addition to running around and, you know, fighting monsters, et cetera, is sit in a classroom and learn things. And one of the things that I learned while in the character of a schoolgirl in this video game was that there was a, a Sherlock Holmes character in a book that was not by Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, he sent us along some information about it. And I, I did not know about Maurice and Lupin. Uh, and that was how we, that came to be. That's, that's very creative. I, I like the thinking there. Yeah, me too. One one of the things I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned earlier this peer review process. Did you get any comments? And who were the peers? Um, Ooh, are we allowed to say? Well, so we review, talk about them generally, yeah, you know. Yeah, the peer review process generally is anonymous. Um, sometimes uh, the the people who are doing the reviewing are will will give their names because they, the anonymity is not important to them in this role. Um, but generally, what they were there um, there were people who were uh, book reviewers who had written a lot about 
about Holmes and Conan Doyle, um, and there were people who'd written uh, written scholarly works on Conan Doyle. Sorry, I'm trying to go off the top of my head now because it's been a year. Um, and then um, people who'd written uh, books more like Michael Sims's. I, what I don't remember, I think Sims might have actually been a peer reviewer as well as writing the introduction. I, I just don't remember off the top of my head. But he's a good example of the kind of person we would reach out to for this. You know, if this were a work of science or history, they'd be people explicitly in the field of those of the realm we're working in. In this case, the goal was to get people who had demonstrated that they know the the books, the author, the works, and the period, and could comment. And the kind of comments they made were generally, uh, they were more in the line of suggestions. So the the first thing was nobody came back to us and said, oh, you got these three quotes all wrong or from the wrong stories or attributed the wrong things like that that would have been you know terrifyingly bad. Uh, rather, it was more, oh, have you considered this quote from this story or have you considered organizing things like this or that? And we did definitely take on board some of their ideas. Others, we part of the process of peer review is you as the author or editor respond to those reviews uh, before the University Board of Publications agrees that this is a good book and decide, agrees to publish it. And so we wrote back and said, hey, these are great ideas. These three we're going to do. These other three, we're not going to take those on board. Here's why we think the way we're approaching it is better, which in itself is a fun and useful process because it helps you clarify why you made the decisions you did. And just to shed a little bit more light on what that process is like, um, you know, when the press reached out to these readers, as they're called, um, they asked them some specific questions. So they were asking them to look at whether the style and the structure of the work was effective, if it contained unnecessary repetition, if it should be cut or expanded, or if it was the right length, or how could the manuscript be improved? So they had some guidelines to work within as well. Excellent. When you when you put this together, I'm curious, did you find any opportunities um, Stacy, to reflect your other interest, which I understand is beekeeping. You, uh, <laughs> there is one quote about beekeeping in there. I was so delighted in the course of putting this book together to find out that Sherlock Holmes retires and becomes a beekeeper. <laughs> um, and so, so that quote did make it in. Um, I mean, aside from that, in terms of our interests, I think, you know, what we love about revisiting these stories is is those themes that emerged, and so it was fun to to spend some time with all of Holmes's areas of expertise. Mm. How did how did your your sense? What was your sense? I'm just interested in obviously in your reactions to you know going through all the stories and finding these things. Did you, did um, I'm trying to figure out a question that doesn't provide its own answer. What was your sense? What was your oh, sense? Oh, make it easy of, for me, please. <laughs> no, what was your, what was your sense of the writing? You know, it, it just occurs to me that every time Scott and I dig into the stories and find little scenes, there's always a sentence that you've never noticed. There's always something that's really beautifully put together. Oh, I mean, that did was... you come come away and think of of Holmes or Doyle as more of a philosopher than he was really known or what what's your maybe reaction not, on that? Maybe not so much a philosopher, but one of the biggest delights about putting this book together, I think for both Levi and myself, was you know, I I thought of these as detective stories and first and foremost detective stories. But spending a lot of time with Conan Doyle's writing is so gratifying. He's an amazing, tremendous writer. His sentence structure is brilliant. His ability to place you in a scene so concisely, it's 
it's just so charming. And um, I mean, I I came away being just so impressed with with Conan Doyle as a writer in a way that I hadn't been going into the project. Yeah, you you guys talked a couple of weeks ago with one of your guests about his concision relative to his peers in terms of describing things, and that really did come across as we were doing this. Is his ability to set a scene or to sketch out a character in just a few words? I similarly to Stacy, I think if you'd asked me before this project, I would have said I love these stories, I love these characters. Conan Doyle's a, a so-so writer, and I I just found that I was totally wrong. He, he, his prose is memorable. It's witty, and then you add this this layer of invention and his quick grasp of how relationships can work and how they can change. It's it's so much fun to read through the stories again with an eye toward what is memorable about them for a project like this because it really makes those qualities stand out. And- but then there's even the sort of mundane in between all of that stuff kind of writing. And I think a really concrete example of that is we decided um, partway through putting the book together to just have an opening quote for each month that wasn't tied to any specific day, but that just was sort of, you know, placed you in the year. Uh, and there were so many beautiful passages that just in passing described a scene or a season or were particularly atmospheric and and that stuff coming in between all the rest is I think what brought it all together for me mm. i I think that's that's very astute and it's something that even we uh, remark upon particularly on our other show as as we read uh, certain sections from uh, the stories we 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 almost have to stop and marvel at the, you know, his, his, he was a Victorian writer and he was not flowery in his language, say the way Dickens was. Uh, he was very, um, economical with his words and yet he was still able to draw a very vivid scene, uh, in our minds as, you know, maybe as we're heading out to Dartmoor in the Hound of the Baskervilles or just every opening scene that we picture in our mind at Baker Street. Uh, it, it's, it's a remarkable talent. And, you know, this, this brings me to, I think, kind of a final comment. You know, you mentioned having done, uh, the daily Dickens, uh, the daily, uh, Austin. And, and yet this is not the daily Doyle. This is the daily Sherlock Holmes. Uh, yeah. In, in some ways, giving further credit to the character rather than the author. Do you feel any guilt about that? I will admit I gave it some thought early on, and but this is where my other hat as marketing director takes over because much as Conan Doyle, as we know, uh, wanted that time to pretend otherwise, Sherlock Holmes is the one running the show, and, <laughs> and he's the one you can sell. Uh, it it was it's funny because you see these group books around our office as a set, and in some bookstores you'll see them stacked up together, and and you do notice the distinction immediately. Whereas if you see this one on its own, you don't balk for a second mm-hmm. at, the, at it being the Daily Sherlock Holmes. Of course, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, for the record, Levi, that was the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what what are you working on next for your 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 uh your publications whether it's another daily or you know something that's really maybe perhaps somewhat related here what what, what can you tell us? Oh, I'm I'm working on a daily that I want to keep to myself for now cuz partly cuz the odds are it's, it's 
unlikely to happen. It's a pretty big reach, but it would be fun if it did. So if it if it does, I will shout at some point. Um, and otherwise, yeah, we enjoyed doing this project so much that I I will admit I'm thinking about whether there are other projects we could do along similar lines. Uh, the the press itself has got we've got a daily Thoreau coming and we've got a daily Thomas Paine. So this series is continuing. So in the back of my mind is the questions of what other authors Stacy and I might be interested in working on if someone wants them. Uh, but that's that's probably about it for now. Well, that, I, uh, this is the problem of a day job. It sounds <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm not a um, not an author or an editor by trade, and so I'm not really looking ahead to the next book in the same way that Levi is living steeped in that world as he does. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. How 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 big is the series? How many dailies are there? There's four. This is the fourth one, and we've got we've got the Thoreau and the Pain coming in the spring, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, the Thoreau in particular, it's it's assembled by a woman who wrote a biography of Thoreau that we published a few years ago. That's one of the best biographies I've ever read, period, hands down. Uh, and then we are that gets us through fall or through spring, spring 2020. Right now, we're considering some for fall. Um, we're, and we're looking at – I don't think any of the names we're looking at would surprise you that much. We're, we're thinking about people like George Eliot, Samuel Johnson – People who are you know oh. out of copyright, who are established, who have their dedicated fan bases, and also who've written enough, who who wrote enough that you can draw from their corpus and feel confident you're going to find plenty of good stuff. Mm. It's a fun thought experiment. It's fun to, to sit around with colleagues and think about who we might target next. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, uh, Stacy Shintani, Levi Stahl. Uh, the book is The Daily Sherlock Holmes, A Year of Quotes from the Casebook of the World's Greatest Detective. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. And if folks would like a copy of this, it is, of course, available from the University of Chicago Press and wherever books are sold. Thanks again. Thank you for having us. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. <laughs> I really enjoy talking to Levi and Stacy. And you would think, or at least I would think, since I've seen so many day books and almanacs and things like that, that there wouldn't be anything, you know, particularly distinctive to do in compiling another one. But, you know, they have really come up with a very satisfying mix of things that are familiar and funny and descriptive that, um, you know, really sort of welcome you back into the canon if you haven't picked up any part of it recently. And just in thinking about that, I just looked at the entry for November 25th in The Daily Sherlock Holmes. And this is just sort of a great example. So the entry for November 25th is, From the point of view of the criminal expert, said Mr. Sherlock Holmes, London has become a singularly uninteresting city since the death of the late lamented Professor Moriarty. And then Watson says, I can hardly think that you would find many decent citizens to agree with you, I answered. Well, well, says Holmes. I must not be selfish. <laughs> you know, and it's that wonderful little picture of character, you know. I mean, uh, 
any other writer, you know, would have had a very different interchange mm. there. But even in just those few words, well, well, I must not be selfish. You know, you get such a little sliver of personality. And that's really what's, uh, what characterizes this whole compilation. So mm. I think it's, uh, really a lot of fun well i i think that's a great way to uh to look at it bert and hearing the approach that stacy and levi took um from you know and uh, very different approaches between the two of them i think they complemented one another and you know holmes and watson themselves complemented one another throughout the canon each brought uh, something to the the role and something to the uh, the page that the other did not and, uh, you know, one of the most famous friendships in all of literary history. Uh, so it worked really well. And, and when you think about the book, uh, in terms of, uh, complimenting, you know, the, the new reader or even the, the non-reader of Sherlock Holmes stories versus the, uh, the veteran reader, the Sherlockian scholars, uh, there's something in here for everyone that makes it, uh, interesting and relevant, uh, fits the two together quite well. So. Well done to Stacy and Levi. Can there be such a thing as too many clues? Well, Sherlockian amateur sleuth Sebastian McCabe and his friend Jeff Cody think so when they encounter double murder on campus in Dan Antriaco's latest mystery, Too Many Clues. How could the killer have entered the scene of the first killing without showing up on the surveillance video? It seems like magic or a locked room murder in a novel unfortunately mac is a magician of no small ability as well as a mystery writer this ninth novel in the series marks the debut of a great new character and a farewell to two others who have been part of the mccabe cody universe since the beginning the story begins the day after thanksgiving and ends on christmas day making it perfect for end-of-the-year reading or giving as a gift. Find out why reader Nuno Robles of Lisbon, Portugal wrote, With the McCabe and Cody mysteries, Dan Andriaco is doing for us what Conan Doyle did for the readers of Holmes and Watson in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He's writing not only fantastic mystery stories, but also creating unique characters that we can relate to. Too Many Clues by Dan Andriaco. Buy it online now. And don't forget, if you're at the BSI Weekend in New York, stop by the dealer room and see Dan Andriaco in person. Maybe get your copy autographed. Well, that brings us to the portion of the show, as you probably guessed from that theme song where we get into the canonical couplet. That's right, it's America's and, well, the world's really favorite Sherlockian quiz show, where we give you a two-line poem and you guess the Sherlock Holmes story from which it is taken or that it is inspired from. And the last time we were here in episode 180, we gave you this one. The words were said and help came rather late. And listen to that preacher's Billingsgate. Bert, do you know which story that referred to? Yes, it's the strange case of the 
bleached slipper, I think. Isn't that the, um, the, no, no, that was the, I was thinking that was the blanched slipper, but that wasn't that case at all. That was the, that was the, uh, Shaska mold umbrella, wasn't it? <laughs> wow. Uh, you're getting colder and colder every time. Uh, mm. you, I, I will give you credit for the S. There is an S in the title. It was the solitary cyclist. Oh, that's yeah. right. The one about the bicycle chain. <laughs> the clue there, of course, was listen to that preacher's Billingsgate. And for those who are not familiar with uh, Cockney slang, uh, Billingsgate is um, well. It, it's 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 not necessarily Cockney slang. It is uh, a term related to the Billingsgate fish market. Uh, which is in London, of course, and Billingsgate uh, was also notorious for the crude language that resol- uh, uh, resounded through its stalls. So uh, the preacher, of course, was sending forth all sorts of invectives uh, directed at Sherlock Holmes for interrupting the wedding that he was, quote-unquote, officiating at the time. Well, the good news is we had a number of people who did realize that fact, and now we get to spin the big prize wheel as it goes around, and we listen as it slows down, and we see that it lands on number 12, number 12, and that corresponds to Eric Scase. Eric, congratulations. And now going to give you this episode's canonical couplet. Here we go. Enough for him to kiss her garment's hems and cheer while millions tumbled in the Thames. If you think you know the answer to this canonical couplet, jot it down in an email titled Canonical Couplet sent to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win a prize. Good luck. Oh, Bert, I can't wait to hear what you're going to come up with next time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just apparently, you know, my grasp of these stories is a lot lighter than I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) oh back to the books for you my friend yeah well you know it's it's creeping superficiality it's a 21st century issue i believe that's pronounced the creeping man oh that's right oh that's right no (laughs) that wasn't even the couple save that one for a future show there you go (laughs) well uh this rounds out the month of december that means we only have two shows left before the end of 2019 who will those guests be on those remaining two shows you'll have to wait and see until then i am the remaining half of the podcast hosts uh team scott monty And I'm looking for Santa. I'm the other half. I'm Burt Walder. And ho, 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 we're ready to go. And that means together we say the The games games of foot. (laughs) (laughs) The The games of foot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. 
Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 